Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outsiders no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the third day of our hybrid five-day session. Um, it's the 7th of June 2021. And we're going to take up where we left off um, in the experience, in experience of enlightenment by Flora Courtois. And we were at a point where um, she'd had a couple of important insights that uh, changed how she was going about her search. Uh, the first of these was just to recap a little um, a casual remark made, made by one of her, her psychology teachers that the world as we see it is simply a projection of neural activity in the visual centers of the brain. When she heard this it was like it, um, it meant that she knew she did not have to work any longer looking outside of herself, but, but needed to investigate her own mind. Uh, a second experience um, that she had was of, of um, connectedness, of feeling all of a piece with the earth. Um, and this, this too was to um, uh, 
exhilarate her and encourage her in her efforts. But at the same time, uh, she was feeling more and more isolated, more and more at odds with the, the normal world. Just to read from where we, we left off. After these two incidents, I ceased to search for an answer in reading and became intensely interested in exploring everyday experience. The very nature of sensation itself absorbed my attention. I became increasingly aware of sights, sounds, touch and smell impressions, feelings, all for their own sakes, and the more absorbent I became, the more endless the vistas which seemed to open. Um, note here that she, she talks about her investigation into um, the, the senses as being all for their own sakes. In other words, uh, not grasping at sense objects so much as interested in the nature of the senses themselves. Um, this brings to mind the, the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, in which uh, the Buddha instructs his disciples in contemplating the body in the body, the feelings in the field, feelings, the mind objects in mind objects and so forth. continues, what is more immediate than sensation, I ask myself. Surely reality must somehow permeate immediate sensation. Yet each sense is so limited, so partial and incomplete. How does one sense reality whole, all at once? Is that possible? These are uh, big questions to be asking. like a strong undertow pulling me down and away from the routine surface of life, my inner quest absorbed more and more of my time. I began to stay alone in my room for long periods, just sitting, observing, struggling inwardly for some direct content. If there is a basic reality that is common to everything, I thought, it must be within my experience too as well as in everything and everybody else's. Surely I can grasp it immediately and at first hand. Any other way would be only second hand and would not be it at all. But how could I get at it? How know at first hand? I became preoccupied with the most elementary processes of getting myself reoriented to the earth and to the people and things around me. It's difficult to describe this period and the rather eerie feelings that pervaded this groping. Um, this is at times what we need to do 
is to grope. In other words, to search in the dark, to search not knowing where we're going or how things will unfold. Somebody once asked Einstein how he worked, and he said, I grope. It was as if I had been living in a world of ideas, now having lost confidence in these and having let go of them, I had to start all over again. To look at everything, to feel it, touch it, sense it again, almost as an infant does, to realize what experience was truly like. Having lost confidence in the world of ideas, We can't, we can't fake this, this loss of confidence. It, it really has to come out of um, a genuine process. We have to, uh, some of us more than others, have to exhaust our uh, kind of commerce in the world of ideas. See, see for ourselves their limits and how they limit our experience for that matter. Once, once she had reached this point, she had to start all over again, as she says, to look at everything, feel it, touch it, sense it again, almost as an infant does, to realize what experience was truly like. It could say she was in the process of turning into a moo-fool. Seeing things from, from a mind that is, is, is no long, longer cluttered. Again and again, again and again, I returned to considering the sense of sight. It seemed to me that how one saw the world around one not what one saw, but how, was the crux of the problem. Somewhere in a psychology textbook, perhaps in a chapter on Gestalt psychology, I had read a discussion of figure and ground perception. I now noticed that while the focus of sight moved from figure to figure, the nature of the ground largely determined the nature of the figure. But what and where was the basic ground for all perception? Was it just another but larger figure with a fixed boundary? I seemed able neither to penetrate to its nature nor to find its limits.
we often log on to the objects of our awareness. Either we uh, uh, attach to them, cling to them, or we may uh, push them away, experience aversion towards them, or if, if they're neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we may just ignore them. But in this process of, of locking on one way or another, we, we miss the whole picture. We lose sight of the ground. Another way of understanding uh, this uh, issue of ground and figure is um, the way that often in the background uh, conditioning that determines how we experience things. For instance, if we if we have uh, prejudices of one kind or another, whether it's racial prejudice or sexism or, or homophobia, then um, those those prejudices will be active in in shaping how we see people from those different groups. It's like we don't see them in the round as fully subjective beings, but, but more like cardboard cutouts with with labels stuck on them on the outside rather than, than rounded human beings. So in, in this, these cases, the background is, is not a neutral one. And we need to examine these, these um, types of conditioning, see them for what they are. But that's, that's not what um, Flora Cortaya is talking about here. She's talking about seeking... Um, the ground of all experience. Uh, the uh, late teacher um, John Dido Laurie would uh, often talk about our true nature as a ground of being. This is what Flora Courtois is seeking. What what is is behind uh, the objects we experience or permeating them. And how can we how can we uh, train ourselves or use our mind in a way that enables us to experience this ground? In uh, one of her books, Martine Batchelor um, suggests that um, we experiment a little bit in our practice with this issue of, of sort of foreground and background. She, she, um, she's writing about working with the practice, uh, what is this here? She says, remember, the question opens up a broad and deep focus. 
we're not what asking what is this what is this to shut everything out that's not the idea rather we're asking what is this in the foreground while in the background we have a wide open awareness where we have thoughts sensations hear sounds and notice feelings as they arise and pass away so put the question in the foreground and everything else in the background at times though you could have sound in the foreground or the breath and possibly the question in the background or no question at all then introduce it again from time to time and see how it works it's refreshing to hear these instructions and they can help us to refresh our practice. Um, it is important if, if um, working with a koan to play with it from time to time. Our minds are very malleable and we need to um, experiment with the koan rather than just hold it in a kind of um, death grip where we, we feel there's only one right way um, and many, many wrong ways to, to question the koan. I think this, this comes originally from the Korean master, Chinul, but the, this image um, for how we practice of a chicken sitting on her eggs and in order to keep them all warm, she moves them periodically with her feet so they're, they're not just sitting there in a, a static pile with the, some nearer to her and some further away, but she, she, she rotates them. So this playing with foreground and background is, is a way of acknowledging that we're working with the mind and we, we can work in different ways. We have a choice about how we relate to what arises in the mind. Move, for instance, may seem to disappear, but who's aware that it has? It's move, of course. How could it be anything else? continues it came to me that I had always thought of the center of myself as in my head and the rest of my body is somehow incidental my head was so full of activity it was almost as if it were disconnected from the rest of me just before falling asleep sometimes I would have the illusion of having an enormous head I thought of the various parts of my body in sequence it seemed to me that there was something all wrong with this. If one were a whole and single human being, surely there must be some way to realize oneself all at once, to think with one's feet as well as one's head.
it's a little bit as if um, Flora Courtois is, is uh, discovering some of the the basic Zen principles on her own as she goes through this process. Um, the the emphasis in in Zen of of centering our questioning on our vital center, the Hara, as a way of of um, uh, bypassing or or weakening that tendency for us to be centered up in our heads and our thoughts. And she mentions thinking with one's feet. That's very much a part of of the martial arts to be able to think with one's whole body, which of course martial arts, many of them influenced by Zen. It takes it takes training to to come to this sense of of um, the whole the whole body working as one. My pursuit of this elusive ground of all things, of all things perceived, began now to bring my attention to a welter of forgotten memories and feelings. Over many hours, I reviewed past experiences with parents, relatives, and friends, realizing gradually that this web of memories made an ever-shifting pattern, never quite the same from moment to moment. Where was the changelessness? in change which I sought here. And this is something that can happen as we go go deeper and as the mind settles more and more, is that any any uh, unresolved issues that are there will, will will bubble up to the surface. They will, they will arise. But it's notable here that Flora Courtois doesn't just dwell in the stories themselves, but she gets some meta-awareness of the whole um, phenomenon of these arising memories um, and the, sh the patterns that are, that are made in this arising. She sees how how these memories are not entirely fixed, but in, in flux. She, it's as if she kind of can get to the point where she's witnessing the parade as it goes by, anchored in her search for the ground of it all, the changeless in change, as she puts it here. Um, this this um, way of thinking of our, our practice as anchoring us, I think is um, one that I find helpful and I've heard from other people that they find it helpful. It's um, elaborated in... Uh, by Martine Batchelor in her, her book, in her husband's book, uh, Stephen's What Is This? Just uh, read a little bit of it.
Rather than use the term concentration, I prefer to use the word anchoring because we have an unhelpful relationship to concentration. If somebody tells us concentrate, generally we tense up and try to narrow our focus. Anchoring is a better image because it brings to mind anchoring a boat. We have the anchor, we have the boat, and thanks to the anchor, the boat does not, is not going to drift away. The boat isn't stationary, it shifts a little according to the current and wind, but it's not going very far. So we see that the anchor, the breath, the body, sound, or a question, actually helps us to be with our experience. The aim is to be with our life in this moment, in an open and stable way. In the Son tradition, we come back to the question, what is this? The crucial aspect of anchoring, whether we're coming back to the breath or coming back to the question, what is this, is that we come back to the whole experience of this moment. And a little further on, uh, she says, It is very important to see that when we anchor, when we focus, we don't hold on to the breath for dear life, nor do we hold on to the question tensely. Instead, we use them as an anchor in our experience. We come back to them again and again and cultivate choice. Do I continue with this or do I return to the question? That's the choice we have. We can continue with a certain thought or come back to our whole experience via the anchor. Uh, we're very much doing the same thing in Shikantaza when we notice um, we've, our mind is narrowed down on, on a thought or feeling to uh, choose to um, reconnect with the whole picture. All of the um, sensations and of of sitting there to come back to that that wider perspective. continues. Now it was as if I were being pulled down into the vortex of a maelstrom within me, pulling me ever further down and away from everyday life and involving me in an all-consuming life or death struggle. Although I never completely lost touch with other people around me, I began to wonder if I would ever be in close communication with another human being again. Their lives and daily preoccupations seemed so remote from mine. The simplest tasks distracted me and took an excessive amount of time. I remember standing over an ironing board and concentrating so intently on the question, what is the ground of everyday reality, that it took me all afternoon to do a small ironing. That was certainly no way to hold a job. You can imagine, you can imagine what her, her um, employer might have thought at, uh, in witnessing this. I remembered a remark of Nietzsche's 
that it was dangerous for, dangerous for anyone to go too far alone. This frightened me, but I could not give up now. I felt compelled to go on no matter what the outcome. We can, we can see her courage and determination here. Um, and also gratitude for being part of a Sangha where we do have contact with like-minded people. And we can come together in this in the container that is Sishin to do this work together. Now I made two urgent attempts to find someone who could understand and help. One Sunday morning I went back to Mass, which I had no longer been attending, at the campus chapel. It was a clear cold day and the chapel was jammed with other young people dressed in their best clothes. The priest was a popular, hearty young man who kept the social life of the parish churning. The whole ritual affair appeared to me in my frame of mind as a highly managed charade. After listening to the, his sermon, the possibility of ever communicating my acute concern to this man seemed remote. Perhaps I did him an injustice, but I never went back. I next paid a visit to a philosophy professor whom I had heard was a kind and understanding man. When I told him of my intense interest in discovering the nature of reality, he suggested I take a course in epistemology the following term. I left his office feeling utterly forsaken, thinking, I don't want another course. What I want is the thing itself. I began to despair of ever communicating this to anyone. About this time, when in my room alone, I began to have occasional visions. These were not hallucinations, nor were they dreams. They were more like the visions one sometimes sees just before sleep, or iodetic images. They were astoundingly clear. In one of them, a scene appeared as from an incalculably remote and primitive time. I seemed to be a member of a small family of cave dwellers. There was a darkness, a gloomy dankness about our lives and surroundings. In our cave, we had found a place of security and protection from what I sensed to be a hostile outside world. Gradually, however, we found within ourselves the courage as a family to venture forth together to seek a brighter, more open place. Now we found ourselves on a great open, light plain which stretched in all directions and where the horizon seemed to beckon to us with untold possibilities. To my surprise and horror, the others in my family found this threatening and decided to return to life in the cave. I felt profoundly convinced that this represented a critical decision, a fork in the life of the family and indeed of the whole human race. The challenge was of the next important step upward. Or we could, we could see this as um, happening within the individual, this, this uh, aspiration to uh, venture forth and then 
the turning back. And we can probably, many of us, and uh, identify in our lives times when we've, we've played it safe, when we've chosen the, the dank cave over something wider and more expansive. I knew, now knew that the choice I had to make was whether to remain within the safe fold of the group or to continue on, leaving most of mankind behind. If I went on, henceforth I would go alone. After this, my sense of aloneness deepened still further. In another vision, I found myself standing in a familiar room where apparently I had already spent many years. The place had an abstract geometric quality squared off in flat two-dimensional planes as in certain modern stage sets. I seemed to spend a great deal of my time at a desk facing a wall, manipulating assorted coloured blocks. Without actually seeing them, I also knew that all around me in the same building, above and below and up and down long hallways, there were other persons in other in similar cubistic rooms, busy day and night with the same kind of abstract manipulations. Now this was happening in the 40s, this experience of Flora Courtois, and was written down in the 60s, but it certainly sounds uh, pretty uh, relevant to us today. Perhaps we would say rather than sorting coloured blocks, uh, clicking on assorted coloured squares, Once in a while we came out of our rooms and met in the hallways to chat a while before returning to our separated cubicles. One day, without knowing why or how, I turned completely around and there, to my surprise, was a long open window opening directly onto a breathtaking vista. It had apparently been there all along. Stepping outside in wonder, I found myself again in an airy light scene where there was a mountain fresh stream winding beneath shade trees, where the colours were deep and translucent. Everything seemed alive and dancing, and the horizons and the firmament extended to infinity in all directions. Along with everything else, I seemed to dance in ecstasy, then standing still and looking back at the building, I thought sadly of the people there, each in his cubicle, unaware of the wondrous universe all about, so easily accessible if only they would turn around and look. I felt I must return to communicate this message to them. Of course we can understand these dreams as uh, giving form to what was happening to Flora. Gradually she's turning away from, from those abstract manipulations and experiencing everything freshly, vibrantly.
to my display, dismay on re-entering the building. I found I had no words for it. Nothing I did could alert the attention of these others running up and down the halls or walking furiously or working furiously in their walled-off rooms. There's a there's a um, a line in in Mumon's commentary to the um, Koan Mo in the first case in the Mumon Khan, where he talks about the person uh, working on Mu as being like a mute person who has had a dream. It is hard to adequately describe the depth of conviction, the sense of mysterious truth these visions carried with them. A conviction grew in me that mankind had become over-civilized and degenerate, that just as in my visions, somewhere on the evolutionary path, a wrong fork had been taken, where men had retreated from a critical challenge to return to the living source walling themselves off and manipulating their constricted environments until they had become effete intellectual creatures out of communication with the rest of nature. I began to seriously consider the possibility that I might have to go into the woods and to live a more wholesome life alone with the animals. At the same time, hoping that a few human beings with similar feelings might eventually join me there. Again, her, her thoughts here um, are very apt in our, in our time now with, with uh, mass extinctions, global, over, global overheating, and all the many other uh, problems our Earth is suffering because of our, our disconnect from it. She goes on to describe how she started to to um, develop what she calls messianic feelings about having to um, communicate what she had understood from these dreams. And she sits down and writes a, a long essay, um, staying up far into the night, several nights running, um, with the basic theme of... Um, the human race having lost its way and needing to return to its roots in nature. When it was finished, I telephoned Dr. DeWitt Parker, my philosophy professor, and persuaded him to let me bring the paper to his house that very evening. It was a bitter winter night with the snow waist deep, so my urgence, in my urgency, I called a taxi. A wild extravagance for me then. I had a swollen lip from a bad cold sore, and I must have been a strange, dishevelled, half-mad sight as I stood on Dr. Parker's doorstep, manuscript clutched in my hand. Sitting at one end of his pleasant living room, Dr. Parker patiently read through the entire paper while I sat there anxiously waiting. When he had finished, he told me in a kindly manner that the paper made him think of Rousseau. Then, as he was showing me out the door, he gently suggests that it might be wise for me to have a little talk with the university psychiatrist. 
As I returned to my room that night, I felt my last hope of ever being understood had vanished. She then, in a, in a state of, of despair, manages to buy a large bottle of sleeping pills from a, from a pharmacy um, and was contemplating if, if her isolation got worse that she might, she might take the pills. Fortunately, two incidents soon occurred. My seat in a class in European history was in the front row centre, directly in front of the lecturer, so that as he leaned over his lectern, he looked directly down at me. This term, the lecturer happened to be a young visiting professor from Oxford, very British, very starchy. He, he becomes alarmed at her, um, her, how she looks because she's uh, having... Um, She's trying to keep hold of an experience that she had um, in his class. She says, I suddenly became aware of space in an extraordinary manner. That is, I was equally aware of it behind me, underneath, above, all around, and in fact it seemed to be all through me. This so astounded me that I held my eyes wide open and my breath still for fear of losing this incredible experience. This was too much for the visiting British professor who brought his lecture to a full stop, leaned over the lectern and asked me if something I had said had unduly surprised me. I blinked, breathed, replied, no, sir, and returned to history. But now I knew something extraordinary was very close and I felt exhilarated and hopeful. It goes through these, these, these ups and downs in her, her search. When when uh, when I read first read this story, I, I remember seeing if I couldn't try and reproduce what what she had experienced of the sense of the, the the space all around and through me. Um, but it's 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 not so much something you can manipulate with your thoughts, but something that happens when uh, the mind gets quiet enough to become aware of this. Also, apparently by now, a number of people were becoming concerned about my unusual behavior and someone had made a telephone call. One evening there was a, a knock on my bedroom door and Dr. Bell, a woman doctor from the University Health Service, paid me a visit. After a short talk, she persuaded me that a few days rest in the infirmary would be a sound idea, so I packed a few things and went along there with her. Next morning found me in the office of the university psychiatrist, Dr. Teofil Raphael. Dr. Raphael asked me a number of questions about my life at home and in school, and I talked to him quite freely about my parents and my school life. We never once discussed my deeper and more urgent concerns but I did tell him of my vision of the open window. He had a most understanding manner of nodding with his head to one side, his forefinger resting alongside his nose. I realize now he probably interpreted this account of mine from a Freudian point of view. 
At the time, all I felt was a profound relief at being back in contact with at least one seemingly understanding member of the human race. I saw Dr. Raphael only once or twice more in his office. He and his assistant decided I had been working too hard and eating too little. These kind people arranged to tap some university fund, which enabled me to move to a rooming house near a campus, and for a few wonderfully free months, I simply went to one of the college cafeterias where all my meals were paid for. They also requested that I drop in at intervals and report how things were going. This I gladly did. I think in reading, reading about this, this uh, rescue that, that comes to her in her extremity of the, the, the phrase, uh, bodhisattvas spring up in response to our need. Or um, something that, that um, the uh, Vajrayana teacher Alan Wallace talks about in talking of his own um, spiritual journey. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't find a reference for the details of it, but, but basically he says, if we commit to the path, then it rises up to meet us. But at that time, when we make that commitment, we have no assurances given. We can feel as if we are in free fall, but then we're held, we're caught, and help arises one way or another. It was now early spring. After my stay of four or five days in the infirmary, I moved into my new room and returned to my underground quest with renewed vigour. Sitting on a bus one day, I concentrated intently on trying to recapture that awareness of open empty space in all directions until I suddenly realised several people sitting opposite were staring at me in some alarm. I finally decided that reality must be unlike any preconceived idea I might have of it and reached a point of just waiting and letting be. Again, another, another turning point. Reality must be unlike any preconceived idea I might have of it. It's not what we think. She says she reached a point of just waiting and letting, letting be. This is really uh, shikantaza, you could say. A kind of uh, effortless effort, uh, uh, vigilance. For long periods I simply sat, saying in, inwardly, no, not this, as if waiting for what I knew not. This, um, not this, is, is um, a Hindu formulation. It's, it can be used when, when meditating and whatever discrete forms arise to, um, to say, no, not, as the, not this. But waiting, waiting for this, I could say. 
Sometime in April, Easter vacation arrived and I went home to Detroit to spend a week with my parents. There, about three days later, alone in my room, sitting quietly on the edge of my bed and gazing at a small desk, not thinking of anything at all, in a moment too short to measure, the universe changed on its axis and my search was over. That seems like a, a good place uh, to pause here and we'll um, continue again tomorrow um, with this uh, account. So we'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. Do three frustrations battle with each other.